It's Tuesday, January 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Next week marks the beginning of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. And one thing to watch out for will be how the weather behaves. China will be deploying weather modification technology at new levels of scale to make sure the games go off without a hitch. Cloud seeding to produce rain and blue skying to make sure the skies are beautiful and wiped away of clouds and smog. This is on top of already using millions of gallons of water to create new snow needed for outdoor events. Steven Zeichik, tech and innovations reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for China's effort to control the weather. Next, in an effort to keep overdoses at a minimum and provide people safe spaces to use drugs without having to be on a street corner, New York has opened two locations where people can use drugs with supervision. If something goes wrong, train workers can step in with oxygen or other life-saving measures. There is opposition where the fear is that these facilities may lessen the incentive for people to enter treatment programs. Merrill Cornfield, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more on these safe consumption sites that could be on their way soon in other places like Rhode Island and California. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. That's not really stopping China from from moving forward with this. And so, again, they've been kind of they've got all these projects going and have for the last uh, year plus. Uh, and, you know, by, by all accounts and, and from what sources are telling us, uh, they're really stepping it up in advance of the Olympics. Joining us now is Stephen Zychik, tech and innovations writer at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Good to be here. Let's talk about an interesting story in the lead up to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. They're going to be happening next week. But the article that you wrote looking into China's uh, pretty innovative efforts to control the weather, especially with something like the Winter Olympics, you need perfect conditions for the athletes to have their optimal performance. But they're doing some uh, pretty interesting things when it comes to cloud seeding, something called blue skying also. I mean, have divisions within their government dedicated to controlling the weather like this too. So it's just some really interesting stuff. So Steve, help us walk through what are, what is China doing to help control the weather for the Olympics? Well, you, you kind of said it. I mean, there are, there are some very ambitious initiatives that are, uh, that have been taking place for a while there and they're kind of ramping up ahead of the games beginning uh, next week in Beijing and surrounding areas. And uh, you mentioned cloud cloud seeding is a very old tech. It dates back all the way to the 1940s. In fact, and, uh, we've used it here in the U.S. and droughts and other countries around the world have as well. But no one's quite deployed it at the scale that China is doing. And uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, they basically said, we're going to make this a priority and, and essentially cover you know millions of square miles uh, trying to cloud seed. And what cloud seeding essentially is, is it's firing little uh, uh, kind of iodide crystals into clouds to try to stimulate rain. And, um, you know, there's a lot of scientific debate about whether this works or not, but that's not really stopping China from from moving forward with this. And so, again, they've been kind of they've got all these projects going and have for the last uh, year plus. Uh, and, you know, by, by all accounts and, and from what sources are telling us, uh, they're really stepping it up in advance of the Olympics. As I mentioned, they have active departments within their government. So one's called Beijing Weather Modification Office, China Meteorological yeah. Association Weather Modification Center. So, I mean, that just kind of proves how how big they're really going for this. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is kind of remarkable when you think about, you know, sort of formalizing it at that level. I mean, we could think here in the States, we've got, you know, all sorts of government agencies, uh, you know, dedicated to everything from, you know, the education to to the environment to, you know, kind of down the line. But 
you know, and they've got a lot of those too, of course, but the idea that they've got tens of thousands of people working at both, you know, the federal and the provincial level uh, to modify the weather. And that's, that, that includes a lot of other uh, techniques besides this one, but certainly cloud seeding is a big one. So yeah, this is a huge priority uh, for the government there and has been for some time. And they're really leaning on it in advance of the games. So the games are coming up, right? There's uh, whatever the uh, sport of the day that's happening. You just want a beautiful picturesque day. You want blue skies out there. So there is this thing called blue skying. This is something they've already done before. I think they did it last summer where they try to make it rain a little bit, clear out all of the fog, clear out all of the the bad stuff in the sky, make it nice and clear and blue. So this, I mean, tell me a little bit more about that because they've already done some of this. Yeah, no, blue sky is a really interesting sort of approach. And and remember, they, they've got sort of different techniques they can use to clear out the clouds. But but often the goal is, and certainly the way we use it here, is to really uh, cause precipitation to fall so that there's no drought. Or in their case, they do it often to, uh, to reduce the severity of hailstorms. But blue skying is a whole different uh, uh, kettle of fish where they're essentially uh, trying, as you say, to clear out the clouds in advance. So this past summer, uh, they had the uh, big... Um, centenary for the Communist Party, and they wanted, you know, really blue skies over Tiananmen Square. So the night before, they kind of fired all these rockets up to kind of empty the clouds, as it were, to have clear skies the next day. And again, there's a lot of debate about whether this actually works. So it did, in fact, seem to work in this case. And so, yeah, they did clear out the the clouds, and the next day was perfectly blue skies. And, and one can imagine if there's, you know, big events coming up, if there's, you know, opening, closing ceremonies, uh, big, you know, events in, in uh, in the ski centers, uh, they want to make sure that they're happening under nice conditions. It plays well on TV. It plays well uh, for the dignitaries on the ground. And so blue skying, which is essentially using, you know, we're talking about firing rockets and shells into the sky. This isn't just, you know, kind of a, a gentle sort of sweep. This is some heavy artillery. And they're trying, you know, would presumably try to do it. We don't know for sure, but presumably they're going to try to do it to get some really nice days for the Olympics. One of the other things, and this is obviously done in a lot of different places, they are creating snow for a lot of the events there. But this is another kind of subset of that where, I mean, they're using 49 million gallons of water to be able to get this done. So this impacts their water supply. There's a lot of uh, far reaching effects that happen when you're doing a lot of this. Yeah, there really are. And, you know, I think the thing with cloud seeding is we don't really know the effect. If, if you make it rain in one place, are you taking the water from somewhere else? Certainly some of the neighboring countries, India and others have kind of suggested that. Uh, but you're absolutely right in terms of the snow creation. And, you know, we should we should remind listeners that snow creation is not new all around the world. Obviously, a lot of resorts here in, in North America do it. And even past Olympics, both in Sochi and Pyeongchang, that was something that was done at a, a fairly large scale. But, you know, as you note, I mean, China really has in these mountains outside Beijing, they really have almost no snow on a typical week. And so they've got 49 million gallons of water and a kind of whole energy apparatus to create the snow essentially from scratch. And what that means is, you know, Beijing, which already is under a pretty uh, significant uh, water duress, uh, could be facing an even greater one because a lot of this water is being used to make snow. You mentioned it briefly. You touched on it. You know, some of the environmental concerns and risks, a lot of them are still unknown. And, you know, when you're doing a lot of the cloud seeding, let's say you do succeed in making it rain in one part, but there's only so much precipitation available, right? So there is concerns that you could be providing water in one place, taking it away from another place. And as you mentioned, some of the neighboring countries could even impact them. Uh, tell me a little bit about these concerns. Yeah, there, there are serious concerns. And I think, you know, I should caution it by saying that the research on this is still quite an open question, right? Like we don't know how much you're actually, you know, stimulating rain with this stuff. It's very hard to know that. 
because uh, you don't know what it would have, what the rain <laughs> fall uh, would have been otherwise. And uh, it's very hard to know if the rain would it would have rained somewhere else or not. I think the thing that that concerns a lot of the um, experts that I talk to is it's one thing if you're doing it in a very sort of specific one-off kind of targeted way again, which we've done in the West when there are droughts and we're just trying to kind of coax rain out of a few clouds. Uh, what China's uh, doing, uh, not just with the Olympics, but you know, well beyond the games and have been doing for a while, is really pulling this at, at a very, very wide scale. So they've got something over the Tibetan Plateau, which is, you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles, much bigger than even, you know, California or some of the big states we have here. And they're trying to kind of make it rain into the rivers to sort of try to get the rivers to flow a little bit more uh, strongly. So we don't really know what doing it at that scale is going to incur. And I think a lot of neighboring countries, understandably, are kind of saying, well, wait a second, if you're just trying to kind of, you know, take all this rain and, and or take all these clouds and make it rain there, is that going to create drought uh, for us? Because the downstream effect, as it were, is could be a lot less rain for everybody else. So again, we don't know yet because they've not, it's not really been deployed at this scale before, right. but certainly that's something a lot of experts are keeping an eye on. What are people saying about the whole notion of this, exerting so much control over the environment to fit, you know, your specific needs? Uh, one of the people you spoke to in the article, you know, said culturally it's a lot different from in the West, where over here the outdoors is seen as a wilderness. It's separate from us. But in China, the outdoors is more of a garden you tend. So they're very comfortable with exerting all that control. Yeah, it was an interesting point. And, and I think you certainly can raise a few kind of qualifiers to it. And certainly we've uh, here in North America, I've done things to the environment that suggest we're not seeing it as separate from us. But but I think that there is a, a, a cultural mindset. And this was someone uh, who has spent a lot of time as a researcher for various forms of uh, solar geoengineering, which is a whole other <laughs> tactic. But, but he has spent a lot of time there sort of observing and interacting with Chinese engineers to figure out how they approach it. And, and that was his point, that they really see it as something not not so much as, well, whatever happens to the weather happens. But, you know, the way in a garden, you wouldn't just sort of let flowers bloom wildly, you would cultivate it. I think they see, in his estimation at least, uh, they see the outdoors as as uh, as sort of something they want to have that relationship with and um, that garden-like relationship with and thus cloud seeding and weather modification is just a part of that. Well, the Olympics are upon us very shortly. I'm going to be much more in tune to seeing what the weather looks like, what the conditions are, and kind of knowing you know what, what they're doing to prepare for it all. So it'll be something very cool to look out for. Stephen Zajic, tech and innovations writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Law enforcement prosecutors in New York City are not going to go after the people using this site. And we know that this is also going to appear elsewhere. Rhode Island already passed a law saying they're moving forward with their site. California lawmakers and mayors have been talking about this. Joining us now is Merrill Cornfield, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Merrill. Thanks so much. I want to talk about an interesting story you wrote up inside a pioneering U.S. site authorized to monitor people using drugs. So this is uh, would be a location where people can go in and use uh, the drug of their choice and be monitored by staffers there on hand if something goes wrong, if an overdose appears to be happening. They can step in, uh, provide oxygen, provide other support. And there's a lot of opposition to something like this. It's uh, I think it's only happening in New York right now, but advocates for this type of center say that there could be a set of blueprint for it to happen in other parts of the country. There's a lot of stuff going on with this. So help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? 
Yeah, so this is the first sanctioned version of this in the country. We know that it's existed unsanctioned in other parts of the country. And what that means is that um, there's an agreement that law enforcement prosecutors in New York City are not going to go after the people using this site. And we know that this is also going to appear elsewhere. Rhode Island already passed a law saying they're moving forward with their site. California lawmakers and mayors have been talking about this. So um, this is something we're going to see elsewhere. Um, and, and, you know, we're getting our first peek at what it actually looks like in New York City now. So how does this work and what does this look like? In, in your article, you, you detail a story of a man who's addicted to heroin. He went to the site so he can use before he had a job interview later that day, which is <laughs> pretty crazy, I guess. He began to nod off. He went a little pale. Workers sprang into action. They gave him oxygen and averted what could have been a pretty bad situation with an overdose. So what does this look like? People, just anybody can just walk in and say, hey, you know, I need to use one of the rooms and then they leave and they're high or, you know, do they help them? Do they say they, they got to stay there until it wears off? How does that work? Um, they do stay there to monitor them. There's a period of time that they keep them in this kind of clinical environment. It's not rooms, but rather pods where um, you know they have these people facing mirrors and a, a metal desk where they have their paraphernalia and drugs um, on the counter that they can use. Um, and they, they bring their own illegal drugs. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in the article that uh, it does have kind of a clinical type setting, or at least it seems like there's needles of different size and cotton gauze, elastic tourniquets. They have to bring their own drugs, obviously. And it's just a, a place to go to keep them off the street or having to do it on a corner in front of others. And people that have gone in to use it at least have, have said that it helps. It, it, they feel good about going there. Yeah, that was the sense I got from people. Um, and, and the organizers also pointed to the paperwork that they do on intake when people come in to use the site. Um, they fill out a form that says, you know, where would they be doing drugs if not for that location? And the majority of them are saying they would do it by themselves. Um, they'd probably do it like in a public place if they couldn't do it at home. And that means that, you know, especially in this time of the pandemic, when we've seen an unprecedented number of overdoses that some experts have attributed to the isolation of the pandemic in itself, you know, that, that there's a now this communal space for the first time that we're seeing what that could mean for um, overdoses and the other aspects that go into that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, some opposition to to things like this. A lot of it has to be a question of resources. You know, should we put time and effort, money into other things like treatment programs? People, I guess, residents, local residents say they might not want to invite the type of people that use drugs, you know, into their local neighborhoods, things like that. What, you know, what, are the, what do people that are opposed to this stuff say? Yeah, so this is, you know, because it's the first sanctioned site, we've never really tested to see what this looks like in practice. Um, will people who use this site just use it um, and, and then they won't be using drugs outside of the site? Probably not because they're um, probably active drug users um, if they're at that point. And, you know, that could mean that people aren't getting treatment and, and, are, and are continuing to use drugs, which has obvious public health consequences. And then the other aspect of it, as, as you had mentioned, are neighbors and people who live in these areas. In this case, it's East Harlem was the site that I went to, and there's a predominantly black community there who raised these questions about the oversaturation of drug treatments clinics 
in their neighborhood when drug use is happening across New York City, across the country, and, you know, to be the first kind of guinea pigs with something like this, um, you know, makes those residents fear fear for crime in the area um, and, you know, risks that come with that. Is there an attempt to give people that come in and use their literature on treatment programs or anything like that? Do they just let them leave at the end of, you know, for lack of a better term, of a session? Or do they try to provide them with with some type of other options? Um, Organizers at this site are adamant that they are providing as much um, information as people um, will take about treatment. Uh, They said that some of the volunteers at of that their site are in treatment themselves and can talk about those experiences with users. It gives them a person to see what their experience has been like and get to know that. Um, and as soon as they, you know, bring up the question of treatment, which has come up after these dozens of overdoses they've reversed, um, they immediately have literature to give to that person and, and uh, social workers upstairs that can walk them through what their options are. Now, uh, you made mention in the article about how uh, the federal government is not necessarily behind these. Obviously, these are the very first facilities that we're seeing for this. This is in New York we're talking about. But there was, uh, I guess, the the Trump administration had tried to stamp out any type of these facilities. The Biden administration has taken kind of a a step-back approach. They're not actively trying to close anything. But but how does that fare with what New York's doing? Um, Organizers... When I asked them about, you know, the silence, we've, we haven't heard from Biden's DOJ about um, their position. Um, and we don't really, um, at least the experts I've talked to, don't anticipate that um, there will be any immediate announcement from the Biden administration about a take on supervised consumption sites. Um, for now, the organizers are cautious, but they felt optimistic, especially by um, the recent push. Um, from district attorneys that supported their efforts, four out of the five in the city have backed them. So um, they they feel like they are in um, you know precarious position. Obviously, if the administration changes, um, but that they they were going to continue doing this as long as they could. So it'll be interesting to see what next steps are. As you mentioned, Rhode Island has passed something like this. California is considering something like this. And now for this, these facilities here in New York, it's about the data collection and, and, and seeing if it helps, you know, if it improves anything in the community, if it proves the lives of these people, if they get less overdoses, I would assume also. Uh, so now it's a numbers thing, collecting all that data and seeing how, uh, how much of a positive thing it, it could be. That's right. I'd say that it's a data thing. And then also, you know, it's a, you know, just having the experience of having something there um, is beneficial for organizers who are trying to, um, you know, create these sites in their own communities. They have now a place to take um, policymakers um, and others to, you know, see what this actually looks like in practice. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if we see more of these and if it really takes off. Meryl Cornfield, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.